Hello and welcome to a special episode of There's No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. Brought to you by ACCESS, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. I'm Jennifer Macy. Australia's Great Barrier Reef has become something of a poster child for contemporary climate change. Mass coral bleaching events are a stark and very real example of the effects of warming temperatures on the ocean. Dr Leah Gibbs is a senior lecturer in human geography at the University of Wollongong. She visited and explored the Great Barrier Reef in 2019 and she shared her observations as part of Entanglements, a joint lecture series by ACCESS, researchers from the Animal Studies Research Network at UOW and the Wollongong Art Gallery. Fascinated by the relationship between people and nature, Dr Leah Gibbs asks the questions, what does being in a place tell us about a place? And what does it tell us about the processes that create and change a place? In this talk, Dr Leah Gibbs views the Great Barrier Reef from three positions, on an island, on the water and underwater. And just to note that we did experience some technical difficulties which affected the quality of the recording. So apologies and thanks for your patience. Thank you all so much for coming out this evening. It's a real honour and a real delight to see all your friendly and supportive faces. I'd like to tell you a story. Um, it's, a, it's a story about a journey a journey to the Great Barrier Reef. And it's a story about how our world is changing. It's a story about how we might make sense of that change. It's a story that comes from me to you and one that's only possible because of my relationships with others. So I'd like to acknowledge some of those others. Sarah Hamilton, coastal scientist and spatial scientist, and Kim Williams, artist, um, who I travelled with to the reef and who shared this journey with me. Lucas Eileen, artist, and Rafael Cabral Cavallo, who is not here today. We're here to document change. The islands aren't terra firma. They migrate slowly through time. The oceans swell, specifically the dominant southeasterly, move the islands particle by particle, northwestward. And on this expedition, we're also seeking to map a different kind of change, climate change. We're especially interested in the effects of climate change over the past two to three years in this place. Coral bleaching has been in the news. Two recent summers have seen two mass bleaching events. The traffic light map showing the extent and intensity of bleaching has been reproduced ad nauseum. This image, or versions of it, has contributed to the story that the reef is dead. But what to make sense of this? How to make sense of this? Of this scale of damage, 2,000 kilometres of coastline, X thousand species potentially affected, what to make of these bright traffic light colours and alarming phrases, 26% dead, 67% dead, and look, just 1% dead. How to make this make sense? 
Climate scientists have said the numbers are in, the politicians aren't listening. The science alone will not change minds or policies. We need to draw on all the tools we have to get the message across. And so, we're sailing into the heart of the red dead zone. We're going with the aim of finding out what we can learn from being in place, on the islands, on the water, underwater. And, like the expeditions before us, we're going to map the islands using the methods that we have. This time, drone surveys, geo-referenced photo transects, bathymetry survey, and the iterative experimental approaches of arts, science, social science collaboration. We walk around the island. Underfoot are fine particles, remnants of animals' bodies, shells and corals. These islands are built by the southeast current, which brings these materials, water, nutrients, and physically shapes the islands. We start on the leeward side. As we walk, the fine-grained sands give way to larger materials on the island's windward side. Sand, sand and coral fragments, sand, coral fragments and thongs, sand, coral fragments, thongs and a fridge door. The amount of plastic and the diversity of its form is striking. Thongs are ubiquitous. A pen with the name and phone number of a provider of horticultural supplies still intact. I'm fascinated by a cluster of whole fluorescent tubes. But perhaps more surprising is my lack of surprise. I've become so familiar with the problem of ocean plastics pollution. My students write essays about it. They campaign their employers to ban it. They are passionate in their desire to prevent it. The traces of our lifestyles have reached even to here. Since the 1950s, the miracle that is plastic has come to be part of our lives in profound and banal ways. And it has come to permeate more and more aspects of our lives the miracle of its robustness and disposability. I continue my walk and come across a single dishwashing liquid bottle. It's a different brand from the one I buy, but could otherwise have been brought here directly from my kitchen. It undisputably connects my everyday life to the damage on the reef. And it connects my life and the reef and the omnipotent petrochemical industries that drive and feed our society, that infiltrate every aspect of our lives and the lives of others, human and non-human. The plastic on the island is distributed in a reliable pattern around its perimeter. More on the windward side, less on the leeward. And it's slowly becoming the material of the island itself. This becomes one of the most prominent signs of climate change. And it becomes the most striking aspect of being on the island. While ocean plastics pollution may be considered an issue quite distinct from climate change, it is inherently connected. Our processes of resource extraction, production, overconsumption and discard 
are entwined with the processes that form and change these islands. The same processes that build the islands bring the plastics. I step onto the Antares and we set to circumnavigate the island again. This time, we're dropping the fish overboard as we go. The fish, a cleverly streamlined underwater camera complete with caudal fin. Combined with depth measurements and GPS points, the fish allows us to create a map of the seabed and life beneath the surface. We're expecting to see a pattern like the one described in other times and places, bleaching in the lee of the island, um, the result of two recent summer events, greater life on the windward, where the dominant current brings fresher water, nutrients and life, and flushes the reef's metabolic wastes. We start, again, in the lee of the island, where the water is flat. Here we develop a technique and a rhythm. Choose a position, angle the boat, motor off, fish overboard, down, 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 camera on, GPS point marked, action. Then camera up, 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 fish back on board, ignition on, and we're off to the next point. Fish allows us to see what's below. Sand, coral rubble, algae, young acropora, small finger-like red corals here and there. We round the corner and leave the relative still. We sail straight into the wind. On this wild side of the island, the wind is strong, the swell high. This is the reef-building side, where we're expecting to find a healthier coral pattern. The Antares lifts and falls with the ocean's swell and pitch. On the water, we feel the ocean's reef-building power. We keep dropping the fish, and the camera paints a picture of the fringing reef. There, sandy bed. Here, crests and swales. There, algae-covered coral rubble. Here, big parites bonnies. I picture it as if from a bird's-eye view. And as I do, I watch the pelicans, whose own bird's-eye view allows them to spy their feed. I count 17 lined up on the shore. How many fish to feed their big bellies? This water must be rich. We drop the camera again and fall amidst a shoal of fish. Trevally, it turns out. Mental note, big fish suggests a lovely bit of reef. Later that day, we come back to the same place with different kit, wetsuits, scuba gear. We roll off the edge of the Antares into the sea. The swell lifts us high, then seconds later, rises high above us on both sides. The surface current is strong. The wind whips spray at our faces. We four gather together. Let's get down, Sarah says. It'll be much nicer down there than it is up here. And it is. I dip my mask beneath the surface. And as soon as I do, I see them. Big fish, half a metre long or more, moving fast beneath us. Slowly we descend and we're amongst them. I smile uncontrollably. I'm captivated. And then they part and they're gone. And we're left with nothing but the milky blue. And a sandy bed below. We'd expected to land on reef here. The fish were our clue. But instead, 
It's sand and some algae. We're in about 10 metres of water and now the fish have gone and the visual reference points kick in. I feel the current pulling us along. It's strong. We're moving fast. Up ahead, a bumpy globe swells into view. A huge Parites bommie, at least three metres high, likely hundreds of years old. As we approach, it's clear that it's dead. We don't linger long. We come across more like this in the pale, turbid water. On some, tiny Acropora sprout out, just two or three years old, established since the recent bleaching event. I'm startled to see this recovery, struck by their persistence despite it all. So we carry on past big Parites bombies, some living, some dead, with their young Acropora recruits, and past sand and algae-covered coral rubble, all signs of loss. And then I hear a sound, not the noisy clamour of my own breathing through the scuba gear, but clicking and chirping. I hear it well before I see it, but eventually, there it is. Another Parites bommie, this one teeming with life, colours and forms we haven't yet seen. Yellow branching corals, crazed concentric rings of Pachycera speciosa, huge open cos lettuce like Turbinaria, sheltering dozens of tiny fluorescent and iridescent fish. And that clicking? The fish chomping the corals. We move on, and all too soon, realise that was the one thriving bommy of the dive. It becomes, perhaps ironically, the low point. The realisation that this is what the entire reef was just before the summer before last. There are the big, hardy parietes and the new Acropora recruits, but there should be so much between. We've heard so much about climate change and the Great Barrier Reef. So much, it's numbing. We've heard that the reef is dead. But our time on the island, on the water and underwater has revealed much greater nuance. The plastic waste now embedded in the island, forming part of the island itself, demonstrates, for better or worse, the extent of our entanglement with this place, a full day's sail from the nearest town. The effects of our everyday lives and big decisions reach far. And so, perhaps, we might change the shape of our influence. With our research kit and our bodies, we find patterns, some expected, some surprising. A fringing reef, for instance, that doesn't conform to bleaching patterns elsewhere. Here, the bleaching has turned coral to rubble even in the face of the reef-building southeast current. But it's not all dead. Big old parietes hold on. New recruits bring new life. Perhaps these are the bellwethers of the reef. And throughout, we're moved by transitions, physical and emotional. Sheer joy of descending through a school of Trevally surprise at the algae-covered rubble beneath, the clicking, teeming life of a thriving reef community, 
and the heart-sinking realisation of the loss it signals. Before we resurface, one more encounter. Sarah points out into the pale blue, not with her arm, but with her whole body and with the determination of that point, I know at the end of it is a shark. My eyes follow the line of her point describe an arc through the water. I watch, watch, watch until the shape emerges and sharpens. A black tip reef shark, unmistakably. An adult, judging by her shape and size. Her swim is smooth and fast, with swift, slight adjustments in direction, the epitome of grace. In this moment, I feel entirely calm. First awe, then my rational mind snaps into focus. I know this is not a particularly dangerous shark. The species, our circumstance, her movement, she is alert but not threatening. I stay still, upright, and follow her face on. Don't let my eyes leave her until she's out of sight. In this moment, all there is is the shark moving through the water and my body suspended in the same sea, endorphins flushing, breath still. Despite our best efforts, she survives. This quiet encounter gives me hope. She swims off beyond the limits of my senses. And then it was time for questions, where later I had time to swap microphones to get a better quality recording. The first question was around Leah's perceptions and emotions after seeing the coral bleaching firsthand. Did it change her perception of the Great Barrier Reef? Um, was there a significant difference? I think there was, because I, it was my first visit to the Great Barrier Reef. So this was a really, um, it was a very special and, you know, um, mind-blowing in the best possible ways experience for me. Um, and I was with people who are here, who have visited the reef before, in Kim's case, who are, ex an ex you know, I have an expert on the reef in Sarah's case, who were there with me. And so, um, and other colleagues as well, Raphael, who I mentioned, who knows the reef well. And so um, I was privy to a whole bunch of really wonderful perspectives and knowledge on the reef. So it was a kind of a combination of learning and trying to develop my understanding and then also responding emotionally. And there's... There's this weird situation, I think, with a place like the Great Barrier Reef that is so in the media. It's so in our public imagination. Um, there's an expectation that you will go there and experience something in particular. And in the past, historically, that something has been the marvellous, magical colours and all that stuff. And over the last few years, that public imaginary has just changed so much. So... I think within our group, we, we perhaps arrived, I should just speak for myself, but we did have conversations about arriving with expectations of being disheartened, dismayed, feeling mournful, feeling lost. So it's a really, it's a great question. I, I think my expectations were quite mixed 
And the experience that I came back with was also quite mixed, but in different and unexpected ways. Yeah. I don't know if any of my lovely collaborators want to add to that. Lucas, Kim or Sarah, who happened to be here, not to put you on the spot or anything. Oh, how the footage from the fish is going to be used. Can I put you on the spot, Sarah? The, you mean the fish as in the camera that we called the fish, mm. or the, the pictures of the fish, the footage of the fish? The camera footage. So we are using that to map what lives on the uh, coral reef platform. So the Great Barrier Reef, when you look at it from space, you see a whole bunch of dots, basically, and there's about 3,000 of them, 2,900, I think Leah said. And uh, each of those is a reef platform that's about, I don't know, four kilometres long on average by maybe two or something like that. And they quite a lot of them, probably about half of them, have got islands that have formed on them. And those islands, as Leah so succinctly put it, are made from broken-down stuff that lives on the reef. So pretty much the entire Great Barrier Reef structure, when you zoom out, is made of calcium carbonate, and all of the things that live on it tend to calcify, which is the name for the process of producing calcium carbonate. So when we're filming what's down on the reef, essentially what we're doing is we've got that camera, which is on about 50 metres of cable. We lower it down. Generally, the reefs go down to a depth of about 25 metres. We film whatever's living on the reef, with the view to making a continuous map of it. And then we sort of run a series of scientific <coughs> models and they help us to understand the things that are living there, how they're calcifying, and then um, how that makes more of a contribution to building the islands themselves. So that in a very broad brush strokes is what we're doing with the footage. As a scientist, what, uh, what do you see the value of inviting other artists and social scientists in a, um, uh, in a, in a regular, obviously happened several times before, um, uh, scientific collection data expedition? What's the point to get someone to write pretty words about it? Sorry, for no, not to dismiss, but you know, to, to, what's the point of what, what's in return for the science? What, well, I suppose I was coming into the collaboration as a frustrated scientist, so my voice was very much the one that sort of Leah depicted at the start of her presentation. We've been doing decades of work on this. Um, our findings we've made quite clear. Um, I think we have communicated them as a community of scientists reasonably clearly, and I suppose at some level we're feeling rather desperate and wanting to find new ways to make headway to make concerted, meaningful action in terms of climate change. So... So it's a tactical decision? Tactical decision, yeah. And um, to a certain extent, I mean, we are in a broader interdisciplinary collaboration, so there are several things that have fallen out of that journey to the reef, and some of them are more radical than others. And... I don't know where half of them are going, and so there's uncertainty there, but it's uncertainty that I find quite enjoyable in the sense that we are we're doing our jobs, we're delivering, we're, building, we're bringing grants, we're writing papers, and we're all covering new territory at the same time, and it's quite enjoyable. For me as a scientist, I get to be creative, and I think often people say you know, the arts are more creative than the sciences, but actually science <coughs> is a very creative endeavour, and uh, I've found new ways to be creative as a scientist, and that, to me, is very fulfilling. Uh, I was just thinking about 
the the question about you know the, the your question, Michael, about <clears throat> what you felt before and after and all that, and and yeah, I I, I expected to be disappointed. That the interesting thing for me is that we had these seven Indonesians from a university in Indonesia on the vessel. Sarah was training them in drone mapping techniques. And so this was their first time in Australia. And um, I felt this really weird sense of patriotism about our Great Barrier Reef. And I was thinking, oh, my God. You know, they later on in the trip, some of them did a dive. And... I was thinking, oh, they're going to be so disappointed. And they were, you know, but they were so polite that they didn't actually say, that was awful, that was really awful. They were saying, there's not much coral, <laughs> in very polite, quiet voices, you know. And so I felt sort of shame that we'd let this amazing organism get to this, sta this, this state. That's what I felt. I was just going to say that I think as a social scientist it's really important to communicate your embodied learning experiences in the way that you have, Leah. Um, and I'm a big fan of being able to um, communicate the way that you have in that beautiful way, at, at, at taking us all there with you. Um, and I wanted to ask you how has having these experiences impacted the way that you teach it in the classroom? Um, this, I feel like this is part of... Uh, an ongoing learning experience for me and for everyone here who teaches and tries to communicate in any way about anything we care about. <laughs> um, and it's also part of two really wonderful projects and journeys that I'm on at the moment with various different combinations of people here today. One of those is this awesome, wonderful group that I've been working with and talking about today Kim, Sarah and Lucas, this work that we've been doing on the reef and on environmental change. And the other one, you're very familiar with Laura, which is the Jindayola project, which involves multiple people here, including Chantelle. And these two projects are just so complementary for me in terms of shifting my thinking, my um, practice, giving me a little bit of confidence in terms of the just the the strength of um, wonderful colleagues, you know, giving the confidence to try things a little bit differently, to move out of your comfort zone, to, to kind of try to communicate differently, to explore different ideas, to, to shift the way that we assume things should work. So whether that's research outputs, Sarah mentioned that some of the things we've been doing in our group have been a little bit different. One of them is we made a song I almost asked if we could sing it tonight, but I thought that might be pushing it. Um, <laughs> um, and we haven't practiced, so please don't put us on the spot. Um, um, so things like that, so whether it's our research communication or whether it's in the classroom. And as you know so well, um, shaking that up is so powerful and yeah. So I'm really enjoying both of those journeys and being part of those journeys weirdly at the same time. And that, so many great complementary conversations. Um, what's been really so kind of... It's, it's quite expansive in a way because you have a different perspective to me 
Lucas as is an artist too, but he has a different perspective to me. Sarah has a different perspective, and um, so for example, like just I don't I'm not a, I don't know about marine scientists. You know, I just know what I see, and so what I sort of see when we're diving, I was just thinking, well, nearly everything's dead. But what was really good about it was Sarah was saying, oh no, that's not dead. Look, that one is a baby, and it's growing. And so I was like, oh, okay. Right, because I've got this kind of blanket perception of everything in decline, but here is this baby coral actually taking hold and thriving. So, you know, that's something I could never have possibly known without, you know, hanging around with other people that know stuff that I don't. I so agree, and I think that that's one of the amazing things about any kind of collaboration, that we all bring different things to our work, but also very vastly different kinds of collaborations and like collaborations involving very different <laughs> collaborations involving very vastly different people, kinds of people with kinds of expertise that that is really prominent yeah I was just interested in that picture of the coral that had grown in the last uh, couple of years since the bleaching it just made me wonder well is there are there any places where the reef is actually growing or has a potential to grow as a result of these changing water temperatures? And um, could there be anything done to encourage that? Um, so I, I, my understanding, as the social scientist humanity person, is that you know that traffic light map that I showed at the beginning demonstrates something about the tremendous diversity in response to these bleaching events which are triggered by ocean warming, ocean temperatures rising. So there's difference, there's spatial difference, there's tremendous spatial difference. And then the thing that I had no inkling of but is actually quite basic, uh, I had no inkling of before I got there but is quite a basic thing, is that there's huge spatial difference on a particular reef or within a particular island and that whole windward and leeward side that I kind of tried to raise multiple times is really, really important. So there's kind of almost like, I almost feel like it's like shadow effects of the the bleaching events. Um, So it's spatially quite diverse and even within one small area, as Kim was saying, you know, you'll see these, these things that you think are dead but no, no, that's a new young thing growing. So there is that kind of diversity. I think the idea of um, things benefiting from ocean warming is a, is a sort of politically dangerous place to go. Um, but something that we're talking about in our, in our lovely collaboration here, um, exploring some more further, is this idea of species on the move. So this idea that with global climate change, species are moving, they're moving you know, to cooler places, whether that's um, higher latitudes or higher altitudes. So we're kind of thinking about looking at that and a lot of work is being done in that space at the moment that's purely scientific and we're trying to think about how can we bring our collaborative relationships that we've been developing over the last couple of years, how can we bring that to, how can we, how can we use that to bring a different set of insights into that that are at once drawing on the science but also thinking about the 
what that means socially and culturally, how we might respond to that as researchers and practitioners. Um, so ah, it's such a good question. There's also all sorts of other, you know, crazy experimental stuff and not so experimental stuff with coral seeding um, where, and there's, there's sort of genetic modification and there's selective uh, mm, selection of particular corals that will be more hardy in warmer waters and movement. People actually moving, physically moving corals from that place to this place. There's lots and lots of work being done in that, in that kind of space. So yeah, great, great interesting area. How are you planning to continue this research in the future, um, specifically with the collaboration altogether? How are you planning to use that in the future? This is part of the fun um, of research, where that's part of an ongoing conversation and we're working through that as we go. Sarah mentioned earlier on that there's stuff we're doing, we're not really sure where it's going, but it's going somewhere interesting. Um, in other cases, we're needing to be quite strategic and think about, okay, we've got to look forward to grant applications and stuff, so we've got to develop something. This species on the move idea is one of those possibilities. Um, uh, but I guess there's still other, other work that's coming out of this Great Barrier Reef work that um, I suppose one of the things I'm really interested in is to continue to explore different mediums. So to continue to explore, you know, we've, we've explored with song, we're going to be um, uh, making a, an artwork that's in the form of a poster that will be printed at Big Fag Press in Sydney where Lucas works um, and that that will involve musical notation, a song that Kim wrote that we've had actually um, notated by a musician I'm, none of us are actually musicians, but we wrote a song anyway um, um, that we've had notated. So we're thinking about visual sort of um, visual outputs, sound music outputs. I'm kind of experimenting with trying to communicate some of my writing a bit differently. So thank you for being my experimental audience. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit of following what grabs our interest, and it's a little bit of just to sort of follow on on that sort of what future directions and stuff, one of the things that we've been following through as a collaborative team is a, is a sort of a meta research project on ourselves about how we collaborate. So um, we've never done it before, collaborate between social science, art and, and science, and we don't know how to do it, and there's no instruction manual about how to do it. So when you do it, in a particular case study with a real-world situation, then you're actually creating an instruction manual for ourselves or others who might come along. So we kind of are always kind of doing this meta-analysis of our own interactions. And I kind of think about it partly as a, a metaphor of like cultural exchange. So we belong to particular cultures of practice where we have norms and specific languages that we use to communicate about the way that we work. And to us, to Kim and me, for example, as artists, you know, our normal ways, well, they just, they're normal. They become invisible because they're normal. And then when you try to c communicate across cultural boundaries, you experience discomfort because the other doesn't understand what you're talking about and vice versa. And, that, and allowing ourselves the space and time to experience that as productive and generative rather than irritating is part of our challenge. So that meta 
research project about ourselves collaborating is also a big part of, I think, what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, we come from different disciplinary traditions, but actually there is a lot of overlap as to how we understand things and what our disciplinary objectives are, what our underlying philosophies are. So something that, that came out of that trip, um, Leah, when she was talking about walking on the island, it was part of a reflective piece, and actually we all did the same walk that day at approximately the same time, and we all wrote our own independent reflective pieces of the same walk. And we did it as kind of a little experimental exercise, and then we sat down and we compared them, and we had a conversation about, oh, well, when I was saying this, it came from this part of my training, and we kind of used it as a, as a kind of a structured approach to comparing what we're doing, but something that fell out of that exercise was that there was just as much similarity in what we were doing as there was difference. And so I think it's an important point to note as well is that there was a lot of similarity in what we were aiming to do and our approaches to doing it. Um, there's a politics to climate change which is all about action and change that has a temporal dimension. And as I was listening, there was a rhythm to lots of the processes um, and lots of the actors involved in the reef. You talked about this movement of the ocean. You talked about the decomposition decompo of the plastic as examples of the different sorts of rhythms that are at play. So I was wondering amongst the collaboration, was rhythm and time something that you had thought about as a way to intervene in the politics of the climate change? and the, the urgency around the reef to take us away from a linear understanding of time um, that maps out the future of the reef as something you know, to be of concern of future generations. Mm, that's such a nice question, Gordon, and I'm not surprised to hear you talking about rhythm and time because I know it's one of your great interests and areas of expertise. And I don't know, I feel like maybe no, have we talked much about rhythm and time? There's a few gentle shakes of head. So you might have planted a seed for us to explore. I think that's really interesting. Um... So trying to move away our, our thinking about time as always being a linear thing and trying to embrace understandings where the here and the now are folded, to, folded together but also in terms of troubling our notion of time because there's a whole multiplicities of rhythms that start to, to set out particular understandings and orderings of what the reef is. So the mapping process is one way of creating an understanding of this thing that we call the reef. But there's a whole lot of processes at play that bring together different spacings and orderings and timings and it's one way to try and create an intervention to engage with people to, to, to move away from a, a linear kind of understanding of climate change that's locked into kind of like a, a clock time, I suppose, because that's the, the dominant mode of understanding time in our society. Looking at the whole thing as a pretty urgent and important communication exercise. Um, is there anything going on in association with this sort of work about, well, 
what kind of stuff works best with people and particularly what kind of stuff works best with um, fringe sort of people who, whose behaviour and attitudes need to change. Because we're all, I guess it would be a pretty good guess that we're all already in the, in the tent. I think the short answer is yes, there's lots of work in that space um, from lots of different angles. So there's probably a bunch of people who are experts in psychology who would study that in terms of behaviour change and so on. There'd be people who would study these kinds of ideas in terms of questioning who are we to even assume someone else should change their mind. Um, but I think um, I'd want to come back to what Lucas was talking about earlier where this is sort of one of the things that we're wanting to explore is what sort of different work does this do? Does it do anything? What does it do? Is it effective? In what ways? So I guess part of what we're trying to do as a group is to, to jump on board that, that sort of area of... of um, Exploration, exploring ideas. Yeah. Because it's something to do with representation. And when you were talking and showing these pictures and telling your story, I kept thinking about sunsets, you know, and tourism. Sunset and tourism were these kind of images that came to my mind. My brother is an enthusiastic amateur photographer, and his holy grail is a perfect sunset photograph. And something about the Great Barrier Reef is is similar to that. It's like you want to have the perfect Great Barrier Reef moment, which maybe you'll be able to capture and share with others. And you've had this experience, which is not perfect, you know? And how do you represent that? So this, this is kind of what I'm, you know, the, the feeling that as an audience member from your representational system, which is a combination of storytelling and images um, as a sort of performative event with the sound of your voice and rhythm and everything is a sort of representational attempt to capture this thing which is like a faulty sunset in a way that, um, you know, it's hard to describe. Like, because it's, it's, you know, um, the word nondescript, you know, could be used to, des- to describe a dead reef. So you like, part of your um, skill or attempt to develop that skill of representation is like how do you get into the grain of something that's kind of dying um, not only in terms of its textures and materials but also in terms of the feelings and affects that it generates in your embodied experience so I guess you know that I just wanted, wanted to sort of remark upon that the power of your representational attempt today Thanks, Lucas. I reckon that's a great comment to end on. (laughs) (laughs) That was Dr Leah Gibbs, Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. This episode was recorded live on Thursday the 26th of September 2019 at the Wollongong Art Gallery which is on the land of the Dharawal people of the Yuan Nation. There's No Place Like is a production of Access and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. To hear more from the Entanglements live lecture series, subscribe to There's No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. 
For more information and for the latest research from ACCESS, go to the website, which you can find easily by typing in both acronyms, UOW and ACCESS, into your search engine. And the page for the Research Centre will come up. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G, short for geography. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy, editing by Lizzie Jack, and thank you to Kevin Brand for the original music. Thanks for listening.